So we look after 3,000 Olympic athletes, para and able-bodied athletes in Canada. So we're the guys that advise them. Okay. And our advice to the integrated support teams for each team is use the Hooper McKinnon. So what people don't realize is that a person's perception of their sleep is far more important than objective data. That Triathlon Show 260. Hey, what's up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of That Triathlon Show, the podcast presented by scientifictriathlon.com. I'm your host, Michael, and on today's episode, I interview Dr. Charles Samuels, who is the medical director of the Center for Sleep and Human Performance in Calgary, Canada. One of his key interest areas, which makes him a very appropriate guest for this podcast, is exploring the relationship of sleep on recovery and performance in elite Olympic Canadian athletes. Related to this, Dr. Samuels has, among other things, developed the Athlete Sleep Screening Questionnaire, which is the only validated, scientifically validated questionnaire for sleep patterns in, athlete, in the athletic population. So he is uh, super knowledgeable in this area. And in this episode and interview, uh, Dr. Samuels will filter through some of the noise surrounding sleep, give practical advice for getting adequate sleep, and uh, and also, importantly, discuss why sleep tracking wearables and uh, monitoring, which is something that's very popular these days, may actually uh, do more harm than good almost. So uh, that's uh, a really interesting topic that we get into as well. On my end, I did end up having some pretty significant internet connection issues. I kept losing Dr. Samuels and getting dropouts. So, um, yeah, I want to apologize to Dr. Samuels for that because we had to uh, do some retakes and uh, those sorts of annoying things. And uh, also apologize to uh, you, the listener, in advance if it ends up being a nuisance, of course. Kerry, who does the audio editing, has saved my recording screw-ups before, so there's hope that it won't be that bad and we can uh, fix most of this in in editing. I really hope that that is the case, but if there are any parts where uh, there, there are issues, apologies for that. Most of it should be uh, fairly good and uh, easy to listen to, uh, I am sure. Before we get into the actual interview, big thanks to our sponsors, Precision Hydration, that you can find on precisionhydration.com. Precision hydration help athletes get the most out of their endurance performances by individualizing their sodium intake to match their sweat rate and sweat sodium content, which are uh, highly variable uh, parameters between different individuals. You can get help figuring out what your sodium replenishment rate should be by getting a free hydration plan on precisionhydration.com. It consists of a simple quiz of 10 questions that you'll answer. And uh, at the end, you'll get uh, a plan for how much sodium you may need to replace uh, during your races. So check that out on precisionhydration.com. And if you are interested in then trying their electrolyte products that you can choose depending on your results in the sweat test, then do use the promo code DATTRAFLONSHOW15 to get 15% off your entire order. Or if you just want to try one box or tube, then you can do so for free with the promo code DATTRAFLONSHOW, all one word, all caps. And big thanks to Roka that you can find on roka.com. Roka first made a name for themselves by producing the Roka Maverick wetsuit line, which is uh, an absolutely brilliant, super fast wetsuit that is uh, maybe my favorite piece of gear or equipment of everything that I have. Uh, I would say that it probably is, because swimming is my weakness, but that wetsuit helps compensate for a lot of, lot of that. Uh, that being said, uh, Roka are now making big waves in the eyewear space, both in terms of uh, performance uh, sunglasses for cycling, triathlon and, and other sports like beach volleyball and uh, track and field. But also, Roka now offer prescription glasses where they are taking the same principles of making everything as good as it can possibly be, focusing on getting every single detail right, a lot of research and development to make the best possible product that uh, you can think of. They have things like home try-on options and uh, customizable options. So even for the pickiest person, there is uh, 
there is going to be a good option for prescription glasses. So check them out and you can get 20% off your Roka order with the promo code TTS20 on roca.com. Without any further ado, here's Dr. Charles Samuels. Today's guest on that triathlon show is Dr. Charles Samuels. How are you doing today, Charles? I'm very well. How are you? I'm good. Thank you. So uh, for listeners that uh, may not have heard of you, can you start by giving us a brief introduction of yourself and what you're doing? Sure. Um, so I'm a physician. I'm uh, a sleep physician with a specialty in sleep medicine, uh, which is what I do clinically. And I'm the medical director of the Center for Sleep and Human Performance in uh, Calgary. And I, I have dual appointments at the University of Calgary in the Faculty of Medicine and Kinesiology because my areas of interest in research are the relationship of sleep to recovery and high performance individuals. So the two domains of research is one is law enforcement. So looking at how shift work affects performance and law enforcement officers. And then the other by sheer accident in the mid 2000s, 2005 or so um, was with the uh, faculty of kinesiology at the university of Calgary, looking at the effect of sleep and athletes who are becoming overtrained and these were national team and olympic athletes mostly swimmers and cross-country skiers and that transitioned into a over 10-year project of research looking at the relationship of sleep to recovery in elite athletes well that's a perfect lead-in then can you uh, tell us a bit more about that project sure in 2005 after more a clinical relationship with the sport medicine physicians at the University of Calgary who were colleagues of mine that I knew. Um, they were seeing more and more athletes, sort of the late 90s to the early 2000s, sort of falling off the curve. And this would be swimmers and cross-country skiers, sometimes long track speed skaters. So more endurance-related sports. And they were wondering, they couldn't find any medical problems with the kids, but they were becoming pretty much overtrained. Um, and there was a lot of work going on research-wise with the physiologists there, in particular, Dr. Dave Smith on, you know, what was happening to these kids. And uh, so they asked me, they knew sleep was important. They didn't know anything about it. They knew me. And so uh, I got involved in that early prior to the 2006 Olympics. I was um, in a meeting with all of the physicians and the physiologists at the uh, sport medicine center there. And they, the, the head was uh, Winna Moissa, um, who's well known and been involved with the IOC for many years on the sport medicine side. Sorry about that. Um, and he proposed that we really needed to develop a screening tool because there was none. And so that's been the focus of my research. And my first postdoctoral researcher did a two-year finish of a study that took us 15 years to complete, um, validating the athlete sleep screening questionnaire, which while it sounds simple, has been very difficult to do. And we've done that. We've published both stages of the validation in the British Journal of Sport Medicine. Um, and now it is sort of the standard screening tool to be used um, in research for sure. But we also have a clinical program and we do extensive screening of athletes around the world um, with the tool. So the, um, the tool gave us a, a, a sort of foundation to screen athletes. It's valid, it's reliable, and it has a output um, where th there's a score that puts the athlete into four bins, no sleep problem, mild or moderate or severe. And then based on that, we actually pu push back advice to the athlete or the coaches or the team trainer um, to say, here's what you need to do. And if you need a doctor, I will actually meet with the athlete online. Um, we have a, a, a a privacy protected system here in our electronic medical record where we can actually, you know, do a video conference with the athlete and provide them with advice. So in the a group of athletes that you tend to work with, if we stick with, uh, with groups like uh, elite level or younger up and coming athletes, like the swimmers, cross country skiers mm -hmm. and speed skaters, what would be the typical distribution of uh, how athletes would be categorized according to that uh, sleep screening tool? So we're early in the game, but 
so we haven't done large populations and you have to understand in, ep- in epidemiological research to be confident you need large populations and keep in mind that we have so many different sports some of which have so few elite athletes we have to be careful about what we say so to date what we publish and i've just been involved in publishing two new papers on this topic um we're saying that the prevalence of clinically significant sleep disturbance in elite athlete populations is probably in the range of 10 to 15 percent the current screening tool that's being used widespread in sport science is called the pittsburgh sleep quality index which is completely invalid in an athlete population and creates estimates of 50 percent which is just unreasonable so this is really important for people to hear that you know to do this properly you need a tool that's suited to the population athletes in particular elite athletes are very specialized population and the actual prevalence of clinically significant problems is not 50 percent so what are the the items of the the pittsburgh tool that makes it uh, so invalid for athletes what are some some examples of uh, questions or or whatever it is that uh, that may cause those false positives yeah so so it's not about the items it's about the tool itself has only been validated in medical populations Okay. So that's very yeah. important. And in fact, the first part of our study at the beginning in 2005 was to prove that it wasn't was invalid and we did that. And so it's not about the individual items per se, it's the entire tool just doesn't work for athletes. Um and it's not designed to capture what's particular about athletes. Keep in mind that you know, we're dealing with a healthy population of individuals. So using a screening tool that was designed for psychiatry and medicine doesn't make sense in the first place. Mm. Just fundamentally. Does your tool make sense for the majority of the listeners of this podcast that would be amateur athletes typically um, um we we would have a population of maybe the majority of listeners would be 30 years and up or at least 25 years and up although we have younger uh younger listeners as well obviously but but the majority would would be your typical amateur age group athlete uh, is it still valid because they are training a lot but they also have a job and a family and it's not their uh, their main uh, um, their main job to be athletes um so that's actually a really good question and we're at the sort of the the beginning of this process in terms of true large scale validation so it's definitely validated in elite athlete populations and is being used and what's important to understand is you need large volumes of of uh, of data points to continue the validation process um and that's just in athlete populations to to really refine the validation of it um when it comes to non elite athletes so in your case you would have people training for a triathlon for instance and it would be general public um and they could be at a very elite level um so what we have done in an effort to begin that process of validating in in the general population is for instance we screened a thousand marathon runners at the London marathon in 2016 or 17 i can't remember and that's a paper we're about to publish and that'll give us some data um and 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 allow us to then talk about validation in those populations having said that the fact is that there is no other screening tool and so this is the tool that exists in the world um and it's important we've just finished writing a consensus statement for the british journal of sport medicine um and that's myself with about 10 other experts around the world covering every aspect of sleep and elite athletics and there's only two questionnaires screening questionnaires that are are really um useful in athlete populations in general. True validation is a process that requires, you know, many years large populations and we continue that process. Um but I don't think that it really affects the validity of using that in for instance your training population. Um uh I work with a 
the same kind of training group as you run there. My coach looked at your website yesterday and it's a very similar population. And um, we use that for the athletes in this group. Um, and their age ranges from, you know, sort of 20 all the way up to almost 70. Um, and their Ironman training, you know, half um, uh, Ironman training people. And so we're using it across the board now um, because it is, first of all, the only tool. And second of all, will ev eventually be validated and adjusted accordingly as time goes by, which is the normal process of research. Got it. So what is the process uh, then for going through the tool or using the tool right now? Uh, is it How is it available? And uh, once you sort of get your your results, what are the next steps? Is it really just a, a screening to see if you have any problems? And it's a sort of binary decision that if you have problems, see a sleep specialist or what are the potential outcomes of, of using the tool? Yeah, so it's not binary, um, and that's really important. So what we have is a link, and I think I sent you that link yesterday in an email that takes you directly to the screening questionnaire that you can fill out for free on our website, and it will pump back a letter with your results. And with those results, you'll get advice, okay, your score is seven, you're fine, here are the things you need to focus on, or your score is 15, you're not fine, you should see your doctor, or you should see a sleep specialist. Um, and at least it gives the athlete a sense of one, yeah, I have a problem. And two, the experts are recommending that I either see my doctor and talk about it, or I try and find a sleep specialist. Yeah, okay, that makes sense. Uh, so if we back down a little bit and mm -hmm. talk about the general impact that sleep or um, insufficient sleep yeah. or whether it be quality or quantity, what impact does that have on athletic performance if we start, start in that end? So that's a very complicated question that we've just done a, a fairly s systematic review of. And to be quite honest with you, the evidence from a research perspective is limited based on poor research methodologies over the last you know, 20 years. So one of the things we're arguing for is to standardize research methods. Having said that, in the world of sleep science and circadian rhythm science, it's, it's fairly straightforward that if you reduce sleep or disrupt sleep, or do both, you affect performance. So that's inarguable. Um, and then it's a question of, well, what about an athlete? Because they tend to be highly resilient. And so they might tolerate sleep disturbance more than the average person, but is that affecting their ability to perform? So these are the research questions that ongoing we're, we're working on. We're developing better strategies like screening tools, um, understanding whether wearables really help us or not, which is a question that you have later. Um, and keep in mind, a wearable is not a sleep screening tool. It, it isn't. So if people are under the impression that it is, that's incorrect. The other thing is that a wearable cannot detect sleep stages in spite of what they tell you. So those are very important things. So that is somewhat misleading information that you get from wearable technology. Um, so I think uh, as we go forward, we're going to learn more. But for sure, cognitive performance is affected by sleep disturbance. Cognitive performance is affected by circadian rhythm disturbance. So in other words, training out of your sleep phase. And physical performance is something that's very difficult to study. We believe that rate of perceived exertion is affected by undermining sleep as part of the, we call sleep the foundation of recovery. So you need your sleep, that's for sure. The question is, how much do you need? And are you getting the right quality sleep? And is it at the right time of the day? So those are very important factors. And in many athletes, one of the biggest problems is they're not getting enough, largely because they have very uh, demanding schedules. So a lot of my work now with my new postdoctoral researcher working with athletes and teams is to focus on strategizing 
getting the right amount of sleep through a demanding training schedule or competition schedule, whether you're a professional or elite or average athlete. Mm. One thing that comes up, uh, and uh, it's this old, perhaps this old wives' tale, but something that uh, actually anecdotally, I do think it seems to to be somewhat true for me at least, mm -hmm. that if you have a, a night of short on sleep the night before a race, like the triathlon race, for example, yeah. which you might very well have because you need to get up really early and, uh, yeah. and prepare your transition area and everything. Yeah. You can, there's this saying that you can get by on that one night of uh, insufficient sleep, uh, provided you have slept well in the week leading up to it or so. So is that something that has been studied at all? Or is there any, uh, even if there ha it hasn't been studied, is there any logic that would... Uh, that would say that would dictate that it might be the case even if we can't say for sure so there are two ways to answer that question which is an excellent question one is the research would argue that one night of poor sleep can affect performance and does affect performance okay so that would be the research i would argue that if we take care of our athletes leading up to a competition and we do it properly that one poor night of sleep truly is not going to make a big difference and but that's based on my experience working with athletes i mean many many athletes have won gold medals in the olympics and world championships and had a poor night of sleep because it's stressful and they've done just fine so it's not so much in my mind clinically and experientially or anecdotally a problem. The issue is making sure that they're not getting a week of poor sleep leading up to that night. So I would argue that your experience is, is probably the truth. But when you do research and you do very carefully designed research and you sleep restrict individuals prior to a competition, you can actually detect negative changes in performance. Yeah. So on a long term basis then to get adequate sleep in terms of quantity and quality uh, for athletes what does that look like what are the the durations that we need to be hitting and and how uh, are there any quality thresholds that uh, and how how, how do, does quality play into this so i'm going to answer that in two stages uh, the first stage is, well, what do we recommend in general? Because um, I think that's really important for the average, the audience to get, okay, well, here's what we recommend. And the bottom line is in a high volume endurance training, volume uh, endurance sport, we would argue that truly the minimum should be seven hours a night. And, and it would be a very rare individual who could get by on 50 hours of sleep per week training at high volume okay um so but there are your last question is a really good question you know and we we can get to that you know if they feel good are they okay well my my answer would be yeah but the question is is this what they can get away with and how long can they sustain that so that's really important so you know we would argue they need lots of rest and recovery so we give this window of seven to nine hours but what we do with teams and athletes is we say, okay, you need to determine what you need, ideally over seven days. So do the math, you know, do you need eight? What's seven times eight? And that's what you need, 55 to 60 hours a week. So once we get that for an athlete, once they figure it out, and if they go, well, I don't know what I need, we say, okay, here's some sleep logs and it's just paper. It's not a watch. And we say, go home for 28 days and get exactly what you need. Um, and and sleep at the right time of the day. And then we'll look at that as your baseline. And so that would be our way, 14 to 28 days of sleep to, you know, consistently. Um, and that would give us the marker. And then we would look at, you know, what are they getting? Well, what if they need eight and they're only getting six? That's a huge gap, you know, so that's two hours a day over seven days is 14 to 15 hours per week of sleep debt. Well, that's significant. And so making that up in a week is not easy. Um, and if it's, you know, five to eight, that can be made up in a week through napping and strategic napping and whatnot. So we always say to the athlete, figure that number out. Let's say it's 60 and get as close to 60 hours of sleep per week 
um, as you can. Yeah, th this is uh, very new advice because we've all heard the uh, 79 hours, but to break it down on a weekly number is, uh, is something that is uh, yeah. quite quite new, I'm sure, for not just me, but for most people listening. So that's And as a coach, yeah, like as a coach, now you have a good way to monitor and advise the athletes and see what they're getting, um, especially you probably use watch data you know like i use training peaks yeah. and polar yeah. and i'm sure you use the same and you can track these things in athletes you're worried about if you're not worried don't do anything yeah never monitor something if everything's going well because that's ridiculous you know um it, you just create problems especially with sleep you know people get all anxious and whipped out of shape and they shouldn't you know i'm i my big line in my talks to coaches and trainers is look if they go to bed fall asleep in 30 minutes, have one awakening a night for less than 15 minutes, wake up in the morning spontaneously and feel good. There is no sleep problem. Move on. <laughs> yeah, that makes that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. So I think we've alluded to the wearables quite a few times already. And uh, yeah, I'm quite quite eager to <laughs> to hear what you have to say about them. So, so let's go there. Okay. Well, I'll give you my sort of unedited... Uh, 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 take on this, which which I yes. don't <laughs> usually do, but I will do this for you. Um, because we just finished reviewing them all. So we have one section in this paper will be devoted to wearable technology and nearable technology. I can speak to both of those. And we do not talk about brands. We talk about research grade versus non-research grade. So we don't even go into the brand issue. And the bottom line is that at the end of the day, research-grade wearable technology has tremendous limitations when it comes to predicting sleep. And everyone needs to know that. Most of the devices your folks are using are not research-grade devices. They're, they're what I'm using in my Polar Watch, which isn't a research-grade device. Okay, and I can s explain why that is. So at the end of the day, even when we're doing research using research-grade devices, those devices have vast limitations in terms of making any comment about sleep. We can talk about rest-wake um, activity, but not sleep. And so we can look at patterns of um, resting and whatnot. Um, but, the, but these devices do not predict or capture actual sleep. And it's really important to know that um, so that, you know, people understand these limitations. And, um, you know, and more so, they're less accurate, even more, in people who have sleep disturbance. So in other words, in, in, in the population we really care about, they're even less accurate. So if you have no sleep problem and you use a wrist activity monitor, it's probably giving you good, good information. But if you have insomnia and you're using a wrist activity monitor, it's not giving you accurate information and you need to know that. So, you know, th these are limitations. And I don't know what specific questions you might have around this, but that I, I, I want to make that point. Having said that, I'm fascinated by um, the integration of heart rate variability into activity monitoring and how that might capture recovery, not necessarily sleep, but recovery. And, and these devices are now using multiple physiological parameters, heart rate variability and movement, because all your activity monitors are just measuring movement. That's it. Um, and those might have promise in the future of actually predicting the state of recovery, but not necessarily sleep. Well, I have some follow-up questions, or, or one at least, and sure. that is... Um, like there are devices, and I'm not a user of any one of these uh, personally. But the Aura Ring, for example, uh, I am pretty sure that they have validated the at least the heart rate variability aspect of its measurements in mm -hmm. in clinical paper papers against uh, the gold standard measurements. I'm not sure about the sleep by any means, but uh, even if some consumer facing products might have done validation and are so, quote-unquote research grade 
is there a potential that any of these wearables uh, could bring any like practical application or be actually be useful and actionable for uh, for the user compared to just you know monitoring how long you're sleeping which you don't need a monitor for and how how uh, how you felt like how good you felt that you slept well you know i'll answer it in a practical way our advice you know so we look after 3000 olympic athletes para and able bodied athletes in canada so we're the guys that advise them okay and our advice to the integrated support teams for each team is use the hooper mckinnon so what people don't realize is that a person's perception of their sleep is far more important than objective data. So this whole fuss over getting objective data and, and validated data on sleep and whatnot from these devices is actually not as critical as getting the person's perception of the quality of their sleep because that actually has more meaning. And we've known that for many, many years. Um, that correlates well with finding abnormalities on the polysomnogram the objective gold standard of sleep testing. So that's one thing. Um, so we really talk a lot about using paper monitoring or, you know, iPhone, you know, uh, kinds of things that are automated. Um, and they, the trackers or the monitors are just used to support the information we're getting from the athlete. So I think that's really important. That's, that's what we would say the role of monitoring or tracking sleep is. So um, I think... You know, my coach would, you know, works with each athlete and he says, um, you know, we're having problems. You don't seem to be able to sustain performance. What's going on? Well, I'm not sleeping. It's a busy time. It's Christmas. Um, then he might monitor sleep and look at the sleep data and see if it matches the poor performance or poor recovery. Um, but that, you know, requires some education on the coach's behalf. And certainly at an Olympic level, the coaches don't give a damn about the, you know, they're not going to do that. They want someone else doing that. They've got a way more important things to do than monitor someone's sleep. Um, so, uh, you know, we help them with that and whatnot. And we can give them advice and say, you know, maybe it's time to back off on the volume because the kid's really only getting six hours a night, um, they're training way too early in the morning. Uh, there are all kinds of things that we talk about. Uh, swimming would be a perfect example of that. Maybe you need to stop the morning training for a month and let the kid recover and then see how they do going back. Um, those triggers come from their performance metrics. You know, are they declining? Hmm. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And, yeah, and then you can make adjustments accordingly. So when it comes to athletes that might have uh, challenges getting adequate sleep, what, what are the main reasons for that and what might be the potential remedies? So I think the num so the most common problem we see is insomnia. So difficulty falling asleep and staying asleep, usually stress-related, sometimes volume-related. So athletes have two responses to high-volume training. Um, they can either end up with excessive sleepiness and sleep way too much, or they end up with insomnia from a state of hyperarousal just from training. And it resolves as they adjust um, and recover from their high volume training load. Um, so those are two normal responses to high volume training. Um, and, 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 you know, I mean, if a person develops insomnia in that phase, it's kind of normal and they will trend out of it and they'll usually be quite fine and have got the training response expected, et cetera. So we don't want them to be all freaking out that they're not sleeping. But insomnia is the most common clinical problem we see. We treat it behaviorally. We have quite a, a dense behavioral sleep medicine program with one clinician who deals with athletes here. Um, and, and we actually do a lot of work with Red Bull on the eSport side, so in video gaming because they have terrible sleep problems. So we have quite a good program that addresses those issues. It's important to know that the most common sleep disorder that is seen in athletes is in power athletes, so football, um, American football, um, where they have sleep apnea because they're large. So rugby, football, uh, bobsleigh, large necks, these guys have sleep apnea, the prevalence is, you know, probably around 5%, um, if not a little bit higher. And so that's really important to correct because it can seriously undermine training and recovery. 
Mm, yeah, and and what about the other challenges in addition to uh, to insomnia, training volume, like or insom or other reasons for insomnia? Like, for example, what role does uh, screens play into this, and uh, and things like caffeine as well? If we get get into that, and uh, as well as uh, work and life related stressors, can you talk a little bit about those uh, potential other reasons? Yeah, absolutely. So at the end of the day, the bottom line is time. There's only 24 hours in the day, and that ain't changing. And people need to sleep. So let's assume it's seven to eight hours. You've only got the remaining time to train, look after your family, go to work, go to school. And so that becomes an extremely compressed scheduling or management issue. If you add on screen time, you blow it right out of the water. Our biggest problem with athletes today, screen time, which is why I started working with Red Bull because I wanted to understand the nature of this beast and the most elite athletes, you know, and I call them athletes, I do, um, who are sit in front of screens 14 hours a day. Man, you want to see sleep problems. Those kids have sleep problems. So technology has really interjected a major problem for us. So a lot of our education goes to making the athletes aware that they have to limit their screen time severely. A lot of our athletes, um, because they travel internationally, that's how they communicate with their family. And we have to talk to them about that kind of stuff um, because it really gets in the way of their um their rest and recovery. So screens are huge. Caffeine and energy drinks would be the next. And so strategic use of caffeine, I think, has Im- has an embedded understanding within elite athletes. Like they understand that caffeine can't be used indiscriminately um, because it won't enhance performance. So the question is, are you using the caffeine for performance, for fatigue, or for alertness? And what's the timing of the consumption of the caffeine? Because that will seriously affect your sleep. And so in hockey players, it's a problem because they consume tremendous amounts of stimulant beverages prior to games, professional hockey players. Um, and that really affects their ability to sleep after game. You know, So their, their, their sleep times are like two in the morning, four in the morning. Then they have to get up, get back on the ice in the morning. So these are problems that we deal with a lot. Um, so I think strategic use of caffeine, limiting the dose, um, being careful about the timing is critical. I would say energy drinks have no place um, in this, you know, certainly in high performance endurance sport. It just doesn't. It's a really bad idea. On, on, a, um, normal, on a normal training day, not, not a racing day, what's your advice yeah. about caffeine on that kind of day? Yeah, I think morning, so in the average athlete who's training, let's say for an endurance sport where they might have one or two sessions in a day that are maybe, you know, 60 to 90 minutes each, yeah. I think caffeine prior to training um, is fine. Two to 400 milligrams um, would be, you know, the range typically if they're using a coffee um, and that would be it. But keep in mind that caffeine has an eight hour half-life. And caffeine suppresses the drive for sleep. That's how it works. It's not a stimulant per se. So the more caffeine you drink, the closer to bedtime, it will suppress your ability to sleep. And that's the thing people need to know. Um, So the less you use it, the more effective it is and the less impact it will have on sleep. Um, so using it strategically is our advice, not using energy drinks is our advice. And then combining caffeine with napping is a real strategy that we advocate so that caffeine can be consumed, consumed prior to the nap or after the nap, the nap can be 30 minutes, but shouldn't be longer depending on the situation. Um, and it can be very effective in improving um, alertness and performance. For the average person, uh, knowing fully well that this can be very individual, but when would the last cup of coffee in a day uh, be consumed to, to ensure that you can get your quality sleep at night? Yes. Yeah. So the average person, I would say, 
excuse me, no later than noon for coffee. And if your training is in the evening, rather than consuming a caffeinated beverage, um, you know, something that is an energy, you know, like a, a bar is better for your evening training. Don't go to caffeine. Um, use your caffeine midday, no later. And that would be a good strategy to have. Often people really just need the calories prior to training. They don't need the coffee and the caffeine. Yeah. Um, so you mentioned napping. Uh, so can you go into that a little bit more? What what uh, what do we need to know about napping? Yeah. So I'll give you sort of the general rule of napping because it's important. Naps should be timed 12 hours from the midpoint of the nighttime sleep schedule. So if you go to bed at 11, you wake up at 7, 3 is the midpoint of your sleep schedule at night. Somewhere around 3, so in the window of 2 to 4, a 20 to 30 minute nap would be recommended if you're a 9-hour sleeper, for instance, and not getting enough. And napping is very effective pre-training. So I think, you know, people who finish their day, it's been a stressful day, closing your eyes, having a nap, uh, or just resting quietly for 20 to 30 minutes, then getting into the gym and going is a much more physiologically adapted process than just racing from work to the gym. And, and it's all about states of arousal. People are hyper aroused for many reasons and training benefit is maximized by reducing states of arousal. Um, so I think that that's what we use the napping strategy for. And we're not interested in sleep. We're interested in rest. So when people say, well, I can't sleep, I say, I don't really care. Just close your eyes, breathe deep and relax 20 to 30 minutes every day prior to training in the afternoon and that's a good thing for people to do a good habit and the caffeine before naps that would generally be if you have a nap that is a bit earlier in the afternoon uh, and yeah. you know that you can you can still fall asleep well later on in at the night exactly yeah. and it might be for an occasional performance or something like that where or a big training session or something like that where you want to do well um you know, if you're doing threshold testing and whatnot, um, you could use that strategy. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, what about different chronotypes? How does that affect sleep and sleep needs? So that's really important. And people don't understand what a chronotype is generally. So it's important for people to know whether they are a lark. So that's someone who likes to wake up early, sort of 5 a.m. ready to go, 5 to 6 a.m. A night owl, those are people who can't fall asleep before sort of 1 or 2 and like to sleep in till around 9. Or whether you're neutral, the old classic 11 to 7 person. And you really need to know who you are because if you're a night owl training in the morning, we know that very good research has been done to show that that pattern is not productive from a training perspective and it can lead to overtraining or under recovery so this is really important and our biggest problem is in night owls everyone else is pretty pretty fine um, but knowing your chronotype really determines how we manage your sleep and your training schedule um, as an athlete so if there's a swimmer who's a night owl we either correct their sleep phase which is what the sleep doctor does or we change the training it's one or the other but you don't keep training them at six in the morning when they they're they're not even awake until nine that's a bad idea so correcting sleep phase, that means that essentially they're becoming a lark or they can at least adapt the, the sleep phase of a lark. Yeah. So correct? what we, yeah, so we do this all the time and this is most common in the adolescent population. And so I think the thing that people need to know is that in the adolescent population, they have a natural delay in the sleep phase. So they become night owls and that's almost 20% of the average teenager. And so, Training schedules should take into account 
age. And of course, at the elite level, that age group, the adolescents are the ones that were hoping to be podium athletes in their 20s. So we want to take care of them. And um, in fact, that was one of the reasons I originally got involved is that it was in that age group that the swimmers were starting to fall off the curve. Uh, the docs were seeing them um, overtrained and a lot of them were only getting four to five hours of sleep a night with very high volumes of training you know two swimming sessions per day and starting in the pool at six in the morning and of course this just doesn't work and we know that one is the performance isn't optimal and two they just become overtrained um, so I think those are things to be aware of in our job as sleep docs is we have many different manipulations for correcting the sleep phase possibly allowing them to do morning training or train changing the training schedule um, but I have to work with the coach then because the coach is the one who decides you know what's the limit yeah yeah of course so and the final question on my list is uh, one that you mentioned already and that's the uh, the question about which I actually get quite a lot from from listeners mm -hmm. that uh, say that they're feeling well they're feeling as if they're getting they're feeling normal and recovered and can perform in training uh, but uh, and but feel that uh, but they are still sleeping six hours per night and in some cases i've had questions where it's five hours per night they would be on the more extreme end but i've had those questions and yeah. they're wondering whether they might be exceptions to the rule of how much sleep is actually needed so can you comment on that yeah and i think Yes, there are exceptions. There are very, very few exceptions. It depends on age. So if that person is 20 years old, they have no idea what they need because they have an engine and a tank that's so full of gas, they can drive themselves right into the ground. So it's the coach's job to determine whether, in my mind, whether the athlete really has got a misperception of what's going on. And it is this hyper state of hyper arousal that people are completely unaware of that's enhanced by technology so people believe that they can perform with very little sleep and that's not true so there will be a fall off the curve at some point so if this is an athlete that the coach trusts that the coach is seeing they're maintaining and sustaining their performance so i actually i said that that was the last question but i have one more because you mentioned technology and that triggered something that we discussed earlier with screens is it do you think it's the screen themselves and the 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 blue light that is the problem or do you think it's as much what we're doing on the screens with social media notifications and all this crap <laughs> that's going on with technology that is uh, such a big stimulant and uh, arousing factor in our lives that can you can you can you comment on that whether uh, whether one is a bigger problem than the other or if there's absolutely both? yeah 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 so i think that that's really important to understand so when it comes to technology there are two things one is the light and the impact of light and that's actually being called into question how how impactful that is now um so that's one aspect of it so let's assume that it's true when you expose yourself to the uh, wavelength and lux of light that come off a screen, not a television set, but a screen, it can dampen down uh, melatonin. Now we have screen blockers, and when this is something we advise everyone to use, is the uh, you know standard screen blockers that are on your phones and your tablets, and they do work and they're they're quite effective. But more than the light is, in my mind, the interaction with the device. So your second point about you know social media, et cetera. The problem is that people cannot remove themselves from the activity of being on a device, and that is very counterproductive uh, and uh, has substantial negative effects on an individual's ability to sleep. Yeah, yeah. I think we'll leave it at that. But probably that's uh, that's an area where a lot of of us can can definitely work on and try to form mm -hmm. some healthier habits. So yep. the final set of questions are very rapid fire, one sentence or less to answer these. And the first one is: What's your favorite book, blog, or resource related to to sleep or sports or anything you want to pick out? Yeah, I mean, I'd have to say anything produced by Sport Canada and the Long-Term Athlete Development Program, which can be searched online, um, is, you know, what I've been involved in as far as a 
podcast goes, Jay Crush is really good at, uh, you know, digging into this topic in a responsible way and giving really good responsible information around this whole aspect of recovery and where sleep fits into recovery. What's the name of that podcast or the podcast host? Um, Jay Crush. Jay I'm, Crush. I'm looking, okay. yeah, on Twitter. He's going to be mad that I don't know, but... I am. Um, I'll have it in the. I'll have it in the show notes. I'll look it up and yeah. we'll put it in the show notes. You'll get it. Yeah. Okay. What What's a personal habit that's helped you achieve success? My coach, hundred percent. He saved my life at fifty-seven years of age. And finally, what do you wish you had known or done differently at some point in your career? Uh, listen to my late wife. So, and for the listeners that are interested in uh, what uh, you've got going on, the research and uh, and the clinic and everything that you do there, where can they find you and uh, and more information about that? So, the website would be the place, and it's at www.centerforsleep, and center is R-E, dot com. And all of our information uh, is there and, you know, we're on Facebook and we're on Twitter and whatnot. And that's where we can be found as well as the athlete sleep screening questionnaire. Um, I I had sent you the link to the actual questionnaire. Yeah, we'll have that in the show notes as well and uh, yeah. the link to the website. Yeah. Uh, thank you so much, uh, Charles. It's been a pleasure talking to you. I'm sorry for the interruptions uh, with uh, the Wi-Fi and everything, but uh, we'll <laughs> we'll get it stitched together somehow and it will be an episode. Thanks very much. Hope that you enjoyed that interview with Dr. Samuels. You can find the show notes for this episode on thattriathlonshow.com, including resources that we talked about and some other ones that I will mention just now. But importantly, the athlete sleep screening questionnaire will be there. Also, I back in the day in episode 52, I interviewed Shauna Halson of the Australian Institute of Sport on the topic of sleep recovery and performance. So I'll link to that. There's also a great article on sleep by Alex Hutchinson on the Sweat Science blog called The Five Laws of Sleep for Athletes. And uh, this article is actually how I found Dr. Samuels in the first place because he features in that article. And finally, I mentioned this book many times before, but Why We Sleep, Unlocking the Power of Sleep and Dreams by Matthew Walker is an absolutely amazing book that I recommend anybody, not just athletes, just any human being reads because sleep is such an important thing for any person, whether you're doing sports or not. So I'll link to that in the show notes and really, really think that that's uh, something that you can do for yourself as we are in early 2020 and uh, to have the best possible 2020 throughout the year. Get that book, understand the importance of sleep, understand how to make the most out of your sleep, and you will be performing on such a higher level. If you are preparing for any races this season and you need help or guidance with that, check out scientifictriathlon.com. We have everything from ready-made training plans to top-class individual coaching. So depending on how much help and guidance you need, there is a level for you and whatever option you go for, we are very confident that uh, you will improve your performance and uh, get help to achieve your 2020 goals. Big thanks, finally, to our sponsors, Precision Hydration, that you can find on precisionhydration.com. Get a free hydration plan by answering their quiz, and uh, they will help you determine how strong of a sodium concentration you should take in your electrolyte beverage in uh, training and in particular in racing and especially so if the races are long and hot where hydration is going to be absolutely mission critical use the promo code that draft on show one five to get 15 percent off your entire order and big thanks to roca that you can find on roca.com check out their wetsuits dry suits swimskins goggles high performance eyewear and prescription glasses and use the promo code tts20 to get 20 percent off your entire order Thank you, as always, for listening. Keep training smart and keep loving triathlon.